Society of Lincoln Center, you are listening to The Close-Up. On this week's episode, we're sharing a conversation with filmmaker and playwright Kenneth Lonergan, whose critically beloved new film, Manchester by the Sea, comes out this weekend. Manchester by the Sea stars Casey Affleck as a janitor who must care for his teenage nephew after the death of his brother. In addition to a career-best performance by Affleck, the film also features Michelle Williams, Kyle Chandler, and Lucas Hedges in an ensemble performance that Jackson Arne of Reverse Shot says contains multitudes. The film screened in the main slate of the 54th New York Film Festival last month. During the festival, Lonergan joined Kent Jones for one of our HBO director's dialogues. In a wide-ranging discussion, Lonergan talked about his approach to writing dialogue, his background in theater, and his work's tendency to blend dry comedy with dark drama. Let's go now to their conversation. Thank you. Thank you all. The other, the other day, um, uh, at the press conference, I think, um, you uh, got a question that I would imagine you get a lot, which but I, I thought that your answer was really interesting. It's about the difference between writing for the theater and writing for film. And you had said it depends on what you see uh, in, in terms of the world of the characters. Um, that when you're thinking about something for the theater, you see something within a single space um, where the sense of the world around them is inferred. Um, and that with the film, it's, it's uh, perhaps, you know, the whole community around them um, and the environment. And I just sort of wanted to start there. That's an interesting, I thought that was a fascinating answer. Um, sure. What, what, how much, what else could I say about it? <laughs> um, well, I guess that the thing that I want to ask you about it then specifically is when you made your first film, was it, you know, d- d- was that what happened or did you have to adjust yourself a little bit? Okay, sure. Um, well, when I made my first film, I had been doing screenwriting for a living for mm, 10 yeah. years or so, um, but not thinking too much about the visual element of film. Um, I'd been doing theater since high school, and uh, and I was a big movie fan. Mo- I'd say I'm more of a movie fan than a, th- than a theater fan, although I, I love both, but I've certainly seen a lot more movies than plays. Um, so I didn't think about, uh, I also should say I was, I'm a repeat viewer. I've seen the movies that I like. I've, I've I've seen many, I watched them over and over again. Um, um, but I'd never thought about how they were shot ever until I started having to think about how I was going to shoot the movie that I was to direct. Um, and it started out really with conversations about, I had occasional ideas for shots in the, in the script. Not, oh, you can count on me, not too many. Uh, there's one scene where um, Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo are, are meeting up for the first time in the story, and, and you she, can count on me. And yeah. you can count on me. I'm sorry. And she's standing in front of. He's he's waiting for her in front of a window, of a restaurant, and she's inside. And you see her see him before he sees, before he's aware that she's in the restaurant. And then he leaves the shot and then reappears inside the restaurant. That that, well, I hadn't specifically that shot. I wanted something like that. I had that somewhat in my mind when I wrote that little scene. Um, but it really just started with talking to cinematographers because I was about to direct this movie, which I'd never done before, and the uh, learning curve, I used to say, was perpendicular because it's a, it's a big job directing, and, and I <clears throat> didn't know much about it. 
So when I was talking to cinematographers, I started, I started one of the guys I interviewed said, well, you should, I said, I don't know what it should look like. I, I know I should keep it simple because I know I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and he said, well, you should watch movies that you like and, and get a sense of like what, what kind of look you like and what kind of camera work you like and what kind of color, you know, look at things you like and, and steal them. Because uh, it won't look the same anyway. And right. so when interviewing DPs and beginning that process, I suddenly started looking at films with, uh, with some view towards how they're shot, and I began to notice cinematography for the first time, which was very interesting and really educational, um, especially because my tastes lean towards older films, um, not exclusively, but mostly, and in the old days, the cinematography was much uh, the fashion was to be subtler than it than it than it's become now, um, and the the whole pride of a cinematographer was in, in the classic period of Hollywood, and 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 later was that if you notice the cinematography, they're not doing their job. So, but then when you do start to notice it, you notice these things that seem invisible, but you're like, oh, starts out with Gregory Peck, and he comes into the room, and you don't know who's in the room, and there's Jennifer Jones, and then they pull back, and then there's a kid, and then they go to the next shot. But that's a choreographed shot that you don't really notice. <clears throat> and that, then you start noticing all this wonderful work that these cinematographers do, and I, appreciation for it grows, and you start to have ideas of your own, and et cetera. Uh, that's the, ma the man in the gray flannel suit? Yeah. yeah. But that's, I'm assuming that's not one of the films that you go back to a lot. Oh yeah, no, I love that movie, mm -hmm. um, but not especially for the cinematography. Although it's very, it's it's quite good, but uh, no, I love. I've seen that movie forty times. But, uh, but um, give us a few titles because if there's some films oh, that you, Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, a film called Dodsworth, which a lot of people don't that, know. Uh, you and me both, by the way. The yeah. Most perfect American movie ever made, or one of them anyway. Uh, Best Years of Our Lives by the same director, William uh, Wyler. Wuthering Heights, also William Wyler. Uh, to Have and Have Not, The Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, Big Sleep, uh, Angels with Dirty Faces, The Roaring Twenties, the, the, the Bicycle Thief, 400 Blows, uh, The Third Man, uh, Coal Miner's Daughter, Five Easy Pieces, uh, Deer Hunter, Barry Lyndon, on and on. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Dodsworth. I was just thinking about that movie the other day. It's a film I watch about once every six months, maybe. And um, that particular film, I remember when I was a kid and I saw it for the first time, the way that it shifts into those dueling close-ups at the end um, between Walter Houston and Ruth Chatterton when they're on the boat and their yeah. marriage is coming to its definitive end. It's, um, <laughs> does everybody know this film, Dodsworth? If you don't, you should. It's 1936. It's so it's just great. Yeah. It's, and it's a very it's a, I should say it's a really great if you don't know black and white films very well, it's a very, very good uh one to start with because it oh I when I show it to my younger friends who've never seen a black and white movie in their life, they're like they can't they're like because it's so there's just so much about it that you you, you think people in nineteen thirty six didn't have psychology or personalities and they really did. <laughs> uh and it's just the story of a Marriage and more than that of, of Americans in Europe between the wars. Uh, 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 it's it's just wonderful. It's shot by Rudolf Maté, right? Um, and based on a play that is based on the novel by Sinclair Lewis. Yes. Uh, which is also interesting. Yeah, it is. And the but the film is the best of all of them because I, I read the play and I read half the novel and and, and the film is is the best incarnation of that story in my opinion. Um, 
it's and it's also a, a reflection of I think Walter Houston's commitment to the role, one of the great American yeah, actors. Yeah, Walter Houston is the father of John Houston, and the grandfather of Angelica Houston was a very successful and famous stage actor and film actor. He's you may have seen him in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which I think was his last role, which is also a great movie if you haven't seen it. And he's just a chameleon. He's a brilliant actor, and this is one of the great performances, cinema film performances of of all time. Everyone's great in it, though. It's David Niven's first part. He has a small role. He's very good in it. As a cad. Yeah. No, he's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but then, but then, when when you are when the rubber meets the road and you have to you you're there on the set for the first day, what you know from watching movies becomes something else, right? Yes. Um, but I had you know I I I I asked oh, I got I asked for and got a lot of advice. Um, uh, we, I was very fortunate in our line producer, his name was uh, Jill Footlick, who's now a producer in, uh, in her own right, and she, I said to her, listen, I don't know anything, so uh, you have to tell me, you have to walk me through all of this. And I'm, I, I, my one virtue was th that I was not afraid, I was not, I'm not embarrassed to be ignorant, so don't assume I know anything, and uh, you can just assume that I'm, I know nothing, because I know nothing. <laughs> so she just walked me through everything, and I, at some point I said, okay, Jill, what am I to expect on the first day of shooting? Because I was really nervous. And she said, walk me through what would happen on the first day of shooting. And she, she said, you know, it's a good idea to make sure you get your first, uh, either she or the cinematographer, um, um, Steve Kazmierski, uh, uh, um, said, it's good, just have a plan for the day and you can deviate from it, but show up with a plan especially the first few days. You should really know what you're going to shoot the first few days. And you can, you can change your mind when you're there, but it's really good for everyone, for you and for the crew, to, have, to not feel like things are off to a good start. Now, that was good advice. I never would have crossed my mind. I mean, I just you, there's a lot to learn. There's still a lot to learn. Yeah. Um, I, uh, it's interesting that you, you, know, you, you started by talking about the visuals and how you didn't write them into the script because when I think of that film, I think of an image that comes to my mind of Laura Linney pacing back and forth, I think. Yeah. And she says, like, guess what, I fucked my boss today. Yeah, well, actually, <laughs> that's it, two different scenes. But, okay, yeah. I'm thinking of two different, I'm conflating but, two, it's been a while, yeah, but it's okay. very clear in my mind. Uh, yeah, no, she walks back and forth image. in and out of the shot when she's worried about uh, the, the, that her son is missing uh, and her brother, she doesn't know what's happened to them and she's on the phone with the uh, police. And then the scene where she says that she fucked her boss, she's, they're both on the, on the porch. Right. Yeah, once you get started doing it, it's really fun. And, yeah. and, and as I had the con self-imposed control that I wasn't going to do anything too fancy, and also, you start to find out where your tastes are when you ask yourself questions you haven't asked before. Um, and I really learned that I like, I like two shots. I like to see the actors interacting with each other because it doesn't preclude using cutting back and forth and the effect is almost identical, but you definitely get something exciting when you see both performers in the same uh, shot. Um, and I learned that I like, I have a sort of a taste for some dead-on shots where people are against a flat background. Very often the cinematographers like to do a, don't like that, but I think there's something about that. that put, I don't know, first of all, I like the way it looks, and also it puts a certain amount of visual pressure on the, on the, on the human bodies with this, to have a flat background instead of, a, a, instead of uh, depth. Uh, sometimes a, a more generic cinematographer will want to just put depth in because it looks better, even though it may not be pertinent to the shot. And then with Steve, we had a very good relationship. We shot listed the whole movie over about three or four days, 
And uh, we really just started asking, really, like, what is happening in the scene and what would be the best way to express what's happening in very simple ways. Um, remember one example, if, I don't know how interesting this is, but um, there's a scene I wanted to have a really jolly, cheerful feel to it. And it's just a scene where they're reminiscing. She's bringing uh, food to the table and she's bringing, uh, Laura's bringing Mark Ruffalo's character up to date about some old friends of theirs. And there's, the idea of the scene is they're all getting along, really. Um, and then we learn a little something about her past uh, from a chance remark. Uh, and Steve said, well, one way to create visual energy is to have the camera moving in the opposite direction as the, the actor. So we had her coming in from the kitchen with, a, with the food for the table, and the camera went like that, and then, turned, and then pivoted and followed her to the table, and she sat down, and then we stayed in that three-shot for the rest of the scene. And that's just a really simple, neat, trick and I didn't know it and that kind of thing just it, it's just fun, really gets to be very, a lot of fun to play with um. something else that, that came up the other day in relation to I think we were talking about a scene with Casey Affleck and it's the question of when a direct when an actor thinks um, I don't feel like I got that can we do it again um, also, there's also the question of uh, two actors, one of whom might be fresher on the first take, uh, maybe then on you know, the eighth take, and another actor is only warming up and you know, really hits it on the eighth take. That's the, those are the kinds of practical problems that come up, no? Yeah, but I mean, experienced actors know that there'll be a lot of takes and that they can't, you know, experienced film actors, uh, I come from a theater background, so this also took me a while to catch on to, but and my friends who are theater actors who don't do a lot of film also have this problem, but experienced film actors are very used to the idea that they're not in control of the final product. Right. So they're just trying to, and they very often don't even see their own movies. Um, and so they're really just trying to show up that day and, do, some, and do, do the scene as well as they can, and they know that they're not gonna choose what footage gets used. Right. So they just, they're, they're trying to feel good about what they're doing and the very, and the, and the the really the better ones also want to have the other person. You know, it's not just a show for them to show off their own emotional lives. They they want to involve themselves with their with their scene partner, and so you don't. I haven't run into a situation where it doesn't matter if one person feels a little off and one person feels on. They don't. That's not the kind of thing I've ever had an actor bothered about. You listen to both of them. And they, if someone wants another take, you do another take. Mm -hmm. um, and they find it together in your experience. Yeah, very much so. Um, and it's often the actors who want more takes than I do. Um, in that scene, what, Casey always wants a couple more takes than I do, um, and why not? Um, and uh, not always, actually. Depends on the scene. but. Um, uh, and I remember when we were shooting this, the lengthy scene in uh, my movie Margaret with Mark Ruffalo and Anna Paquin on, on the porch of Mark's house in, in Brooklyn. Uh, we did we had two cameras. I think we had two cameras only. Anyway, we had two cameras. It's a it scene's about eight or nine pages long, which is very long for a movie, and very violent and emotionally. Uh, and uh, they were doing great, and I was very happy by take five uh, of both sides, I guess. And then. They were just, they just kept, and they kept having to go inside this little doorway, which was pretending, they were pretending was there, was his apartment, but it was just a little vestibule. 
And I remember going in there, and I was really happy with what they had done. And we were all crammed in this little pretend little space. And they were like, can we just do one more? Please, can we just do one more? Because they were really feeling like warm. And they really got to. And it's fun to watch the progression of that scene uh, over the course of the takes, because it gets more and more. They get rougher and rougher with each other. And then the, we ended up usually using a lot of the fifth take for some reason, that seemed to be the right point. But then you look at take six and seven, and, and his character becomes really horrible. Mm -hmm. He went to this incredibly disgusting, awful place, very organically, but it wasn't what, what fit the story ultimately. But it's, it's nice to have the luxury of, uh, I guess it's comparable to rehearsing a play where you try a lot of things, and then you kind of settle on where, where it's going to live, mm -hmm. and then you move on from there. Uh, you don't have to make that decision on the set. You can try six different ways, and then... Although I think you tend to be gravitating towards where, where, where it's going to eventually live. Mm -hmm. But do you find yourself wanting to be... I mean, when I think of all three of your films, I think every scene, to me, feels like you've been surprised. You've, you've left the door open for yourself to be surprised by what you and the actors find in the moment of filming. Yeah, I think that's true, but that's the whole idea. Otherwise, right. I'd write novels. Um, uh -huh. Um, or you make bad movies. Or you make worse movies, or, or worse, even worse movies, depending yeah. on your, well, how you feel about them. Um, but, uh, the, yeah, it's, it's funny because I, I still have a lot, I have, there are a lot of really interesting accidents happen uh, on the set and almost always find myself using them later. Um, uh, the Gurney is an the Gurney in, Martin, in, in, in Manchester, Manchester is a really good example. How many people, by the way, have seen Manchester already? Oh, okay, that's good. What nice people! That's good. <laughs> um, well, so yeah, so the Gurney was is a very you know good example of that. That was just a they just they had their Gurney stuck and they couldn't get it into the ambulance. And I told the story before, but I said to them after we did one take and they had so much trouble with it, uh, I said, "You guys want to." just practice for a couple of minutes. And they were the real EMS guys from, from Manchester. And they're like, no, 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 we got it, we got it. And I said, okay. And then the second time, it took twice as long to get into the ambulance. Um, but that was really, that was, that was, that was a happy accident. Um, there's a, but it, it's, it's I, you know, I, I don't think of myself as a control freak at all, but I do plan pretty thoroughly for what, we're going to do, and that includes planning for the actors to do surprising and interesting things, uh, which is going to happen because the main goal is to get them involved with each other spontaneously on the firm bedrock of, of the mutual understanding of what their relationship is. Like in that scene with Margaret, with, with Rosemary DeWitt and Mark Ruffalo yeah. and Anna, we talked a lot about what had been going on in the household between Rosemary DeWitt's character, Mark and his wife's character, and what been like and what it means when this girl shows up and we did a and, and all that kind of background that if everyone understands for instance we decided that the character had had some been, they'd had some marital issues that he'd been unfaithful that so that when the young girl shows up she doesn't quite know what's going on then she thinks then she realizes it's just the girl from the accident then they want privacy so then she's suspicious again also what it meant to mark and how what's you know I we we just talked a lot about things that aren't in the script, but really feed the performances because they have such a, they're, they're all in such a, you know, if I had just come today from hospital room where a friend is ill, I haven't fortunately, but if I had, I, that would give me a certain uh, 
feeling or if I was in a terrible mood from something I just, that just happened to me at home, I came in here, I might be in a totally different mood. This is a somewhat artificial uh, situation, so it's easy to put the rest of your life on hold, but we all walk into the room with carrying a lot with us, and it's fun and interesting to, and very helpful to have a mutual understanding of what that is and then take off from there. It's interesting that um, you, you know, when you talk about writing for the theater and thinking about in confined spaces, um, and, and by the way, what you said in contrast to other people that do things in the theater where they show like the great outdoors, I, I, would, I don't want to see those shows. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, it, it strikes me that, that, that that's an interesting contrast between Margaret and, and Manchester by the Sea because Margaret is I in my mind is, is a series of scenes that take place that are, a lot of which are, as you said, emotionally violent, a lot of them, um, within confined spaces, and where you have those inserts of the skyline, and the, the or not the skyline, but of, of the buildings on Upper West Side, and, and how um, you build the world out of uh, those um, confined um, conversations and interactions as opposed to Manchester, which is a lot of, there's a lot of outdoors, a lot of scenes on the ocean, yeah. the, the city itself becomes... That's funny. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, don't think, I think of them as equally indoor-outdoor movies, and in a way, I, f I, I feel like Margaret's a bit more naturally in, uh, uh, integrated into the environment of the city. Well, they both feel integrated into the environment of the city, but I suppose it's because they're two different cities. Yeah, no, no, but I, th I think, I don't know, that's interesting. I think uh, one thing about Manchester that I'm just noticing now is that the continual references to the physical environment, I think, are, are in contrast to what's happening to the characters. Uh, and Contrast? Well, he's in a very dark, closed place, and he doesn't, yeah. and he's trying to hold everything he 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 wants to be in that ugly basement, right? Or he doesn't want to, and he and he doesn't. He's not interested in how beautiful the ocean is or how right. pretty the houses are, right. um, and he's. But it's there. Uh, and if the movie were all took place in an environment of his making, I think it would have an, a lifeless quality. Right. Uh, and uh, I've been asked about the music a few times, and and one and I think one of the reasons why. I gravitated toward this, these extremely beautiful lyrical uh, um, pieces was because that's also in contrast to his state of mind, and it's I suppose I don't this is these are thoughts that I have way after the fact, so it's not like I start out thinking this way, but I think in some way the beauty of the surroundings and the beauty of the music represents in a way what he's lost, and also represents what he's no longer a part of. It also represents what the other part of the rest of the world going about its business while well, he's he's over here and everyone else is over here somewhat and it's also the environment he's moving through that he doesn't want to be a part of anymore all this stuff he used to love and now is agony to him so in a way i guess it's it's as equally integrated but but margaret to me feels like it's literally about the fact that there's all these other people in the city like yes. that's what the movie that's the subject of the movie so in a way this and 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 so that's a little different um one thing that's that's also come up, and then is is a question that's come up a couple times in press conference Q and A, is the question of flashbacks, and which, as you said, you started, you wrote a linear script, uh, and then you found it boring, and you decided that you were going to 
start at the place that you thought was the most interesting and then yeah. move through flashbacks. That must have been a very liberating uh, yeah, decision. Liberating. Yeah, yes, it was. I was very happy about that because I felt really like I was just like slogging through. Okay, now this scene and this scene and this scene and this scene and felt really, it was not just boring to read, it was boring to write. <laughs> um, so I was very happy that when we got, when I, when I, when it occurred to me to put the past in the past and start the, and, and incorporate the flashbacks as a, as a kind of parallel story. Yeah. Was there something that you were thinking of when, as long as we were, we'll go back to film references, was there something that you referred to, another movie that uses flashbacks in a particular way? No, I, no, I'm, I was mostly nervous about it because I couldn't imagine, one thing I'm still not comfortable with is just writing, just putting down in, images. I still think in terms of scenes and I'll, I'll have an Im I can I occasionally think of an image and I'll write it in my notebook and I'll try to use it later or it'll stay in my head. But in terms of writing the script, uh, I don't, I, 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 with the exception of certain, certain sections, I just, I, I, I was very worried, like, I, I was like, how do they, like in Midnight Cowboy, like how do they know when to cut back to like those horrible flashbacks of him back in Oklahoma? Like, and they're so quick and ha like, did they think of that in the editing? Did the director know that? Did they know that in the script? And I was like, oh, oh, that's way, way, way too complicated and pieces are too small. So I tended to think in blocks, but I think it worked out nicely because it, I didn't mean it to be unusual, but it, I think it comes out a, a bit unusual. Like it's a little strange the way it plays out. It's, and it's, I guess, strange is the wrong word. It's kind of a nice blunt. Yes. It's yeah. blunt, and I and 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 I, I I like that. And and in the editing, we definitely. I mean, in the script, it'll say Lee lies in bed, and then I'll write flashback, and I had for myself to keep track of the year. I had I had to keep track of the chronology really carefully because of the ages of the people and the. So I had to know when Joe got sick, when the house burned down, when uh, uh, Elise left Joe, when he when they find her on the sofa. In the scene with Michelle and Casey in the past is taking place after Joe's gotten sick for the first time, but he's doing okay, etc. So it, it was pretty complicated. So I eventually, in the script, it was just like flashback eight years ago, flashback three years ago, flashback five years ago, um, and so I. But then when we were editing it, that work had already been done, and we started out with a conventional. Uh, sort of, you'd see Casey's face, and then you'd go to the flashback, and then you go back to Casey's face, and we very quickly uh, uh, dispensed with that because it was clear to us that there were flashbacks, and we figured if it was not clear to the audience, they would catch up pretty quickly. You're establishing his space emotionally before. Well, it was more the, like just a conventional, this, like you're, yeah. he's lying in his bed, staring at the ceiling, and you go back to something yeah, yeah. else, and then you come back to him, and you realize he was remembering. But right. once the once the once the idea has been established, I think I've, I've heard that the uh, 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 people say that the first flashback, it's actually the second flashback, where he goes back to uh, the scene where his brother gets the diagnosis of heart disease, that people are, are sometimes confused by the, where, what's happened, not, not worried about it, but not sure what's happened, whether, whether they miss, uh, missed something, was his brother alive or dead, or is it the same hospital? Because it is the same hospital. Um, and then they realize that he's, and then when you go back to him in the elevator, exactly the same shot you cut away from, they realize that it's a memory. Right. And from that point on, you, I can do whatever I want. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not trying to be deliberately confusing or deliberately unconventional, 
but it felt better to just go directly to them and be freer and freer about doing that. That strikes me as the kind of worry or comment that would come up in a test screening, right? When someone would react to something, say, wasn't sure where I was here. And yeah. I guess I wonder for you, how much what, do you listen and how much do you say, okay, I'm going to risk it? Well, that's, that's one of the many reasons why, why, why you don't do test screens. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, as you know, a lot of people have to do them. Um, and it's, it's great that you, by the way, you, you mentioned the other night when you introduced the film that you were given full creative control. And uh, that's, a, that's a great thing. It, it, is, it is a great thing. Um, um, but... Uh, um, so uh, let's see. If I, I, but I do care what I do. To me, it, you know, I, I, there's a certain point where I can't, where I need to see the movie with an audience, and the, I, I tend to. It, it's a little silly to talk about, uh, you know, my my process when I've only made three movies. So I don't think you can really call that a process yet. Well, they're but, all really good, so <laughs> oh, that's why we're here. You. I mean, you know. No, I thank you, but I mean, I am still, it's, I'm still fairly new at it, and uh, but I know from my experience in the theater and from writing a lot of scripts over my life that what, where I, what I need in terms of feedback and when I need it. And so what I like to do, uh, if this is of interest, is to, I, at a certain point, if you need to show the movie to people or, you, or you, there's no, you can't go any further uh, with it. Um, and at that point, I have a screening of the friendliest, most loving, supportive people that I know. Um, also, who, because they're my closest friends, will be honest with me for the most part. I mean, as honest as you can expect your friends to be. Um, and there's a smaller, a small subset of those people who will be very honest with me if I ask them to be. But I'm not. In, I don't need to be like thrown from the cliff the first time I see the movie with a group of people. It doesn't help me. Uh, and I certainly. So if I have, if I have a detailed question, I'll ask two people. If. I, it, you know, I want to know if the movie feels long, if it feels boring. Uh, that's something I want to know from any audience. But the, the, and I'd like to know if people like it mostly or don't like it mostly. But as far as specific, well, as far as specific feedback, I, I'll, I, I maybe will say, was it, were the flashbacks confusing? And then if I ask five or ten people who were there and they say no, then I figure they're fine. Um, and if you get... Uh, and if people, if you hear something that it was confusing, and you, then I will sometimes ask more people, and if only one person was confused by it, then I'll leave it alone. Yeah. Um, so I try to more like a feel for the general feeling of the picture when you're, how you can kind of tell when the audience gets bored or restless, and, and then uh, I watch it very differently as soon as there's someone else in the room. And then I'll ask, if I have specific questions, I'll ask them of specific people. Um, in uh, his book about movie making, Sidney Lumet takes you through all the different uh, you know, parts of the process and talks about how he likes this part and doesn't like that part and how much he hates mixing. He just thinks it's a bore and you know, let somebody else do it. And, you know, um, yeah. and is there any part of the process that you enjoy more than others or that you want to get over with, or I, I have a feeling that the editing process is really um, special for you. And uh, Yeah, I, I, I like the editing process. I've had a different, I have a different answer for each, each of the three movies I've done. I, I was incredibly, I find the pre-production to be excruciatingly boring for, the whole, for each of the movies. 
and scouting to be particularly boring um, and, and grueling, but also very rewarding. Um, when boring, you, grueling, and rewarding. Yeah, okay. yeah. Boring, grueling, and yeah, you know, like I don't know what else is like. Boring that. when you're doing it, grueling to go through, rewarding when you find the right place. Yes, thank you. Be very beautifully put. Um, but the scouting for Margaret was the most was ex, was actually exciting because we had this genius locations manager, and I was also because I know this, you know, the, the other two locations are, one is, is an imaginary town in upstate New York. I knew what it wanted to feel like and to look like, but I didn't, but it was very nice for me to be able to find, have Mike Fucci, our locations manager, find these lo amazing locations in the city that I know so well. And I had a very, I had a series of demands on, on the film for how the city was depicted. and. It was really thrilling for me to be able to capture New York the way I actually see it, as opposed to the way I see it portrayed in, in various movies. Sometimes really beautifully, and sometimes just as a background, a nonsensical background that could be anywhere. Um, and then Manchester was uh, different because it was a place that was very real and specific, and and not where I, one that I knew intimately at, at first. Uh, I like. I think my very favorite thing to do is music. I really like trying out different songs and tunes against a picture. That's, like, that's just fun. I could do that all day long. Um, and for the most part, it's all a little, I find it all a little bit grueling, but it's very satisfying when you get a good result. Um, that part, like, on the set is miserable, but then when the actors do the scene and they're great, you're just, like, blown away and you're just very happy until, until you have to start setting up the next shot. <laughs> What's the, what's the work with your production designer like? Because that's something that, you know, in each one of your films is uh, a very special. Uh, it's confusing to me because uh, it's something I'd like to know, learn more about because I watch beautifully designed films and where the director really has a clear interactive uh, uh, um, collaboration, kind of a non-interactive collaboration, has a, has a, a clearly... Uh, a, a, participates a great deal, uh, let me start over. I find it confusing because I don't know what wallpaper is gonna look good on film. So, uh, so I have few, a few very prosaic ideas about production design, which is, one is that it shouldn't, I don't like the, my, my ideas are that it should look like a room and not, an ex, and not a metaphorical reflection of the character's emotional life. The joke that I always make is that when I'm in a bad mood, my sofa doesn't turn four shades darker. Right. <laughs> Um, nor is it always raining at the funeral, you know. You can, uh, uh, it's, uh, and, uh, nor does my, nor do I start wearing t-shirts instead of suits because I'm loosening up, you know. <laughs> my wardrobe is the same over the course of a year, pretty much. And when I have to wear a suit, I wear a suit. When I don't, I don't. And so that type of thing, I find, is, is that's a common approach to production design. That, but to use another, a, 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 the, a, the brilliant version of that is Scorsese in Raging Bull. The, the, all, the, all the boxing matches in Raging Bull are shot with different size lenses and, and, makes the, and, 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 and they are very reflective of uh, Jake LaMotta's experience in the fights. Um, and you'll note, I didn't notice this until I've seen the movie many times, but then I saw a documentary or a commentary that Scorsese was making and how he, they chose to, just the, the different speeds they shot at and then the different, and particularly the ring changes size depending on what kind of fight it is and it's really amazing. And that I think is great. 
but that's a genius working with the production design as it relates to the characters. So that's it. And then otherwise, I'd really just like to learn more about how to incorporate the production design beyond finding where my personal tastes and the personal tastes of the designers meet. Margaret, again, because I know the Upper West Side so well, I had a, and because I know the theater world so well, I had very specific ideas about a lot of the interiors. Um, and then, uh, but mostly in the other two films, I more or less put myself in the hands of the production designer with the directive that these sets should be naturalistic and not uh, expressionistic in any way. Um, the other day when we were uh, at the press conference, we were talking specifically about the scene between, the incredible scene between Casey Affleck and Michelle Williams uh, near the end of the movie. For those of you who haven't seen the movie, we won't, you know, oh, yeah. we'll, we'll try and be as non-specific as possible. But for those of you who have seen it, I guess I just wanted to zero in on that for a minute because there's some, the, the specificity of the emotions and the action that they're, that they're both trying to accomplish with each other and not being able to accomplish with each other and they want to and they can't. They're both trying to break through a wall and through each other's walls in yeah. a way and they can't is, uh, was remarkable to me. And so um, just about the way that you and those two actors got that scene together because boy, it's... Uh, well, thank you. I mean, I, I, I really love that scene too. Uh, there, um, I, I think it's a really well-written scene and I think it's a beautifully acted scene and, and I didn't have to direct it much. I, I don't remember saying, I think I said this the other day, but I, uh, the only direction I remember giving was that I want, I, I, and they really took off, really ran very far with this, was that I wanted them to be both trying to make it easy on each other. Because uh, for those of you who haven't seen the film, the essential dynamic is that she's trying to talk to him and he can't bear to talk to her. But, and she doesn't want to make him talk to him, her if it's going to hurt him. And he doesn't want to spurn her and hurt her. So he's got to get away. She's really trying to reach him. And they're both also trying to be very careful of each other in an extremely loving way. And it's just torture for both of them in different ways. And, and they. I, so I just, that's all I really believe I remember saying. Everything else was kind of in the, in the script and, and then in the behavior, everything else about the behavior they picked up and took way farther than I had when I wrote it. Um, and they just, I don't know how they do that. It's, it, was, it was amazing. But we talked a lot about the background and the, you know, we, knew, we all knew what the relationship had been and what had happened and what had led up to it. But, but uh, when you get people like that, you don't often have to say very much. I wonder if anyone in the audience has any questions. Yeah, Jim. Give it in a nutshell. It's really about how Kenny approaches the question of how men and women respond emotionally to the same event. That's really the core of the question. Yeah. Is there any other part? It's a really good question. Is there any other part of it you'd like to convey to the audience? I'm not being ironical. But that, so I don't think of it in terms of men and women at all. I think of the individuals, um, and if they're women, I try to pretend I'm that woman and if it's a man I try to pretend I'm that man and, and, and then take it from there. Or if they're modeled on people that I know I'll steal as much as I can from behavior I've actually witnessed. Um, I used to, I wrote a, I used to, uh, there's, I, I've written a few teenage characters a few te uh, in various plays and a few teenage girl characters and I think I did a good job, and I 
was asked a few times, like, how do you know what it's like to be a teenage girl? I'm like, well, I don't, but I was around a lot of them when I was a teenager. So if I don't understand it, I can at least remember what, what was said and done and put that in there. And if, if you have a teenage girl playing the part, she can fill in the rest. Um, and that's not, but I mean, honestly, if you try to be faithful to your experience and then use your imagination to enhance that, you hopefully get a credible human being uh, that uh, you get a great actor to embody. They, they, they just fill that. It's not a vessel, but they take that conception of a person and really bring it to life and embody it. But I tend to not think in terms of a, a male or female uh, per se. Oh, and the opening scene. Oh, yes, the opening scene with the with the with the grandmother on the phone about talking about her daughter's bat mitzvah. Uh, uh, that's just uh, that was just a scene about that was just him at work, really. Uh, the idea was just to show him doing his chores, uh, which is the shape of his life at the beginning of the story, and that he's a very chore, he's a job, he's a task-oriented person, and he's got a very controlled existence, and he goes and he does all the, he does these, this work, and he'll interact to a certain degree, but no more. And when the day is over, he gets he gets drunk to the point of passing out, and sometimes getting into a fight, and that that's that's the life he has, and that's the life he wants. That's the only life he can bear to have. But, interestingly enough, it later occurred to me, Casey pointed out to me, he said, it's just so sad because he's fixing the toilet and he's fixing the lamp and all these people have a life and he doesn't. And then I even noticed that the woman on the phone is talking about the bat mitzvah of these little girls. And there's a, those of you who haven't seen the movie, I won't say anything, but there's a, little girls play a big, big part in the story and, and in the history of the, of the main character. So that's one of those, I don't actually think they're accidents, but they feel like accidents, but I think it's because the storyline is on your mind somewhere and it keeps erupting in different places in different forms, hopefully. Without flashbacks. Um, uh, you had said that you had written it out when you Yeah, there was, was one, yeah. there was a fir the first draft didn't have flashbacks, but it had all the material of the flashbacks in chronological order. Um, uh, and then, but that, that was a, an unsuccessful draft. So I never took the flashbacks out once they were in. And I'll just, I'll just give you, I just tried to make them appropriate to his state of mind, what he would be thinking about at the time, um, uh, so that they were motivated and not random. Um, and I can give you, I'll give you two examples. Obviously when he's driving to town, he's starting to, there's a, there's a series of flashbacks when he's driving. When he goes to the hospital and his brother's passed away, he remembers the first day his brother was diagnosed with a congestive heart failure. And that's, and also on his mind is his uh, brother's ex-wife who is uh, had a drinking problem and mental problems uh, because he's on his way to tell his nephew that his father's died. So, and he's thinking just about that family as he, as, uh, well, that's, that's coming up, but I think that's partly why that scene focuses on, uh, on the, on the difficult behavior of Gretchen Maul's character. And then another example is later in the film, he's, he wants to take, uh, he's been given charge of his nephew and he's, he's gotta get out of the town because he can't stand to be there, so his plan is to take him to Boston immediately, which the nephew doesn't want, and they're having lots of arguments about, violent arguments about this. And then the nephew has a little bit of a breakdown uh, after his father, a delayed breakdown on his, after his father's funeral. And when he falls asleep, there's a flashback to uh, the first time the brother saw Lee 
in his apartment in Boston. The flashback that is essentially about the brother helping him in, at his lowest ebb, the worst time of his life, and not letting him abandon everybody and insisting that he stay alive and stay involved in the world. And that leads him to the next morning make an offer that he will stay for six months and not leave right away. So tried to get, and when he, Patrick asks about the mother, there's a flashback to the very serious uh, incident that happened with the mother in the past. So I tried to have them all, not, not, not to be too literal about it, but just motivated at least in some way, each one. Um, it's a comment about the uh, dialogue in Margaret and how beautiful it is, and I concur. It's extraordinary, but I think that I could say that about all of your films. And uh, so it's a question about your writing dialogue. Uh, well, I, I, I really like to write dialogue. I, I, I've always been good at it, and I've always had a very good ear for it. And not to be a modest, but that's, a, I mean, let's face it. Um, <laughs> but, um, I, but I try to, one thing I tell younger people who want to write plays or movies, they ask me about, I try, bad dialogue to me is a dialogue that's trying to be interesting. And, and, and trying to find an interesting turn of phrase or, or trying to convey a, an impression of coolness or, you know, like in action movies, they tend to drop the pronouns a lot. They're like, can't do it. You know, like that kind of thing. And I, I, I like that kind of dialogue sometimes. But real people, everybody has their own way of speaking. And I'm very, I try very, very hard to make everyone speak with their own voice. Naturally, there's a commonality that creeps in, but I can't help. I noticed in this film, there's... Casey says, get off my back, and the drummer kid says, get off my back. And I tend to, there's another one I tend to use a lot. Are you fucking kidding me? I've used that, I've overused that one. Uh, but, one so, with everybody else in the room. But no, but, you know, <laughs> so, but like, anyway, there are certain phrases that will creep up, but I try very hard to, uh, to uh, or when I was just, when I was writing, science fiction novels when I was in seventh grade. My father, who was extremely literate, said to me that he liked my dialogue, and I think that encouraged me to move into a dialogue-driven medium like the theater. But he also said to me that, and I think this is really true, that the great master of, of dialogue, the only writer who really has people speak with completely distinctive voices, every single character is James Joyce. You read those stories or novels like there's not a single there's not a single blurring of of tonality or phrasing i mean it's incredible how he gets every single character has his own way of speaking including people who are related to each other who speak somewhat similarly because they grew up together it's pretty amazing so I, that's 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 the gold standard in my opinion um kenny thank you very much we have to call it a day but really thank you thank you very much The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. 
The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>